Uh, today's scripture is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. Hello again, New Hope, and uh, happy Christmas Eve to all of you. It's great to be here with you. Um, I've got some Christmas gifts, actually, for some of you. Not all of you, I'm sorry. It, it's not based on behavior. No one's on a naughty list or anything like that. But um, if, you were, if, uh, if you were in attendance at our men's retreat last month, we've got books for you, all right? If you came to a men's retreat, there's a box filled with books here. It's called The Imperfect Disciple, written by our guest speaker, Jared Wilson. So after the service, make sure you come to the front, grab a book, from the box, I'll put it up on this table. And um, it, it, just grab one, please, just so we have enough for every, all the guys who came to the retreat. And then if we've got leftovers, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hand those out as well. Please pray with me. Father, as we stand here today, we, we stand as a people most honored, most privileged to be called by your name, to be the beneficiaries of your great love, the receivers of your great mercy and grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, worship in, in everything that we do that remains in this worship gathering, that it would be done out of hearts that are overflowing with gratitude and praise for you. Lord, I confess that I don't have um, anything in the way of clever insights to share tonight, to this, this afternoon. I don't have anything as far as... Uh, witty wisdom or anything like that. All I have here is your word. And my hope, our desire, Father, is that you would present your son, Jesus Christ, to us through your word. Our desire is that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus in your word and encounter him in a very real, experiential way. We ask, Lord, that for any one of us have come in this, this afternoon with, with small views of who Jesus is, we pray that you would enlarge those views. Help us to see how big and glorious Christ is. Lord, we've sung just a few moments ago that your glory would fill the earth. We pray that the glory, your glory would fill the earth and that it would begin by filling our hearts, that our imaginations would be enraptured by your glory, that we would get big visions of who you are as revealed in the scriptures to us, and that we would not be cold or dull to what we see, but that we would respond with honor and worship and love. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's, a, there's one on the rack right in front of you. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is a familiar scene for some of us, maybe a little too familiar for some of us. It's the birth of a child under pretty awful circumstances. We got a pregnant girl here and her betrothed. They're not married yet. He's more like her fiance than he is her husband, which means that rumors would have been swirling around because they're not married and she's pregnant and they're traveling together to this town of Bethlehem for the sake of the census to be registered. They're forced to travel by animal about 80 miles from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem's a crowded city at this point. It's a small town, really, but it was crowded because people were pouring in because of the census. And this little town was not ready for this influx of people. That's why they couldn't find a place at the inn. So while Joseph and Mary are in this crowded little city, they're far from home, and she goes into labor. Maybe that was expected, maybe it wasn't. Maybe they figured there was a good chance that this baby would be born while they were en route to Bethlehem or in Bethlehem. In any case, the baby is born there. And after all is said and done, the baby lies there, all wrapped up in a feeding trough. And if you've, uh, if you've ever been in a room with a newborn baby, you know where everyone's eyes are glued. When, when a baby is born, everyone's looking at the child. If it's your child, then you stare at it. Uh, he or she just, just captivates you. You can't look away. I know that's how I felt with each of my children. I couldn't look away. I stared at their newborn faces, and I wondered, who is this kid? I mean, in a sense, I know who the kid is, but I don't really know the kid. I, I wonder, who will this baby grow up to be? What will they do? Where will they go? What will their laugh sound like? What will they love and be passionate about and talk about? You see, when that newborn baby's in our hands, we love that child, but that child is still a stranger to us. He's a, he's a beloved little stranger. And so we stare and we wonder. Now, now, how much more must have all the eyes been on this child in the manger? A child whose miraculous birth had been foretold by an angel to both the mother and the father. A child whose birth had been announced by a whole troop of heavenly messengers, as Nancy just read for us a moment ago. A child whose birth had been foretold centuries earlier by the prophets of God. How much more must have the eyes of this couple been glued on that child and the wonder swirling around their minds? So try to imagine that scene with me. Try to imagine this, okay? 
you're with the parents and with the shepherds who would have been there later on. And you're staring at the infant in the manger. And, and, and let's ask together, who is this child? Who will he be? What will he do? Who is he? To find the answers to those questions, we don't have to go far. We can look really to any part of this book because the entire Bible is all about that infant, that man, Jesus Christ. But I don't think, I really don't think that there's anywhere in the Bible that reveals who he is more, more clearly and more beautifully than the passage that Dan read to us a few minutes ago. Colossians 1, it's the section of scripture that, that I find myself going back to often. I, I love it because it puts Jesus on display so clearly in, a, in such a unique and, and fully orbed way. So as we imagine that scene in Bethlehem and we ask the question, who is this child laying here in this manger? I want our vision of Jesus to be shaped by Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And by the way, these words in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, a lot of scholars think that it was actually a song. They believe that it was a, a kind of hymn, a, an early hymn that Christians used to sing in the early days of Christianity. And that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Colossians, he's just quoting that hymn. He, he, he's alluding to it because it captures the identity of Jesus so beautifully. It's, it's a hymn about the Son of God who, who took on skin and bones and became a human child and was born in Bethlehem at just as the prophet Micah had predicted he would be 700 years earlier. So what I want to do today is look at this song, look at this early hymn, and we just got two simple points to guide us through it. And here's what they are. One, Jesus is God with us. And number two, Jesus is God for us. Jesus is God with us, and Jesus is God for us. He's God with us, first of all. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 1. It says there, He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, tells us that all humans were created in the image of God. That is, we were, we were made in his likeness, which means that we were made to look like God and we were made to live as God's representatives here on earth. But, but there's a difference between that and what Colossians 1 is telling us. Because here it's saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see, we were made in the image of God. We are his image bearers. Jesus is his actual image. He's not a copy. He's not a rough sketch. He's not a small-scale model of God. He is God himself. He is the invisible made visible. Jesus is, think of it this way, the, the unseeable spirit who is God is given flesh and bones. That's who Jesus is. So listen, if you wonder who God is, what is God like? 
If there is a God, what is he like? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at him as he's described to us throughout the pages of scripture and you will get a full, complete vision of who God is. Because Jesus himself says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Has seen the Father. He hasn't seen, when we look at Jesus, we don't just see certain aspects of who God is. We don't just get a partial glimpse at God. We see the fullness of who God is. When we look at Jesus, we'll consider more of that in just a moment. So in this scene, remember the scene that we started with. Back in Bethlehem, the manger, the infant, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Parents gazing down at that child. Those parents are in the presence of God himself. And as we imagine ourselves there, we imagine ourselves in the presence of the creator God himself. Small enough that we could lift him with one hand, and yet he is God. Verse 15 goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. You know what this means? This means that Jesus, even as a baby, he holds a unique position of honor. In ancient cultures especially, to be the firstborn meant that everything that belonged to your father belonged to you. It's yours. As the firstborn, you are the rightful heir and owner of everything that belongs to your father. So if your father is rich, guess what? You don't just have a rich father. You yourself are rich. It is yours. You have full claim on it. All of it. You're the rightful owner. Think about it this way. The first, think about the firstborn of a monarch. What does he inherit? He inherits the kingdom, doesn't he? He inherits the right to rule. He inherits everything. And so it is with Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. The only difference here is that monarchs usually have to grow into that role. They're born babies. And as they get older, they grow into the role of ruler, authority. Finally, they get to take the reins on the kingdom once they reach a certain age. But Jesus is different in this regard. Jesus is born a ruler. What are we saying at Christmas time? We just sang it last night. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to who? You know the verse? Glory to who? The newborn king. When was someone ever born a king? You may be born and become a king. Jesus was born king. Or, or maybe there's another song that comes to mind. Noel, Noel. Born the king of Israel. You see, you see what it says? Not born to be king, born king. You see, so as, as Joseph and Mary and, and we just in our imaginations are standing there looking down, gazing at this child, we stand before our ruler. Mary and Joseph gaze down at this child that, that, that she just gave birth to and yet must say with, with, on her knees, this is my king. He rules in perfect authority over me. You see, the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that Jesus was, was created first. 
that, that he was the first created being. Jesus is not a created being. The Son wasn't created at all. John 1, 1 tells us this right off the bat in the beginning of the Gospel of John. It says that the Son of God existed long before he took human form. Long before he became this Jewish baby boy, he already existed. The firstborn of all creation means that he is the heir and owner of all creation. So as we imagine that child laying in a manger, we are not standing before a future king, a future great man. No, we are standing before our rightful ruler. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Do you hear that? He's not just the owner. He's the creator of everything. He's not just the ruler. He's the maker and inventor of everything. Visible, invisible, physical, spiritual, he made it all. Everything. In heavens and on earth, Colossians says. That's just a poetic way of saying everywhere. If it's not on earth, it's in the heavens. And if it's not in the heavens, it's on the earth. And wherever you go, he made it all. John, the Gospel of John puts it this way. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Listen, when we look at this child, we are looking at the source of everything around him. Think of it this way. If you can just imagine this, this this small child laying in the manger in the middle of the city, this town, Bethlehem. Bethlehem sits within Judea. Judea sits within the Middle East. Middle East sits within a larger continent, which sits within a larger globe, which sits within a solar system within a universe, and that one point at the middle, that small little point, that baby, that dot right there in the middle of Bethlehem is the source, the origin of everything that surrounds him. Everything that surrounds us as we gaze at him has its beginning in that child. As we sit here and we look around, everything that surrounds you now has its origin in him. He's the source. It means that if you ever see anything that that thrills you, uh, a lunar eclipse, a comet, maybe it's something simple and quiet like a still frozen lake, anything that, that makes you say, that is beautiful, remember that it looks that way because Jesus made it that way. And he made it that way for himself, for you to enjoy and for his own glory. The theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, When the lavish and generous beauty of the world makes you catch your breath, remember that it is like that because of Jesus. Have you ever looked at some aspect of nature? Maybe it's not nature. Maybe it's a piece of art. Maybe it's architecture. Maybe it's a person whose lavish beauty takes your breath away. You catch your breath. Do you ever stop to think, this looks this way because of Jesus?
And that truth should make you catch your breath. Some of us have some uh, big dinners coming up tonight, maybe tomorrow. I don't know what you've got on the menu, but whatever it is, if it's good and you're enjoying it and you're thinking about whether to eat seconds or thirds or fourths, stop and think for a second. This tastes so good because of Jesus. This was his idea. I mean, certainly someone cooked it up and someone came up with the recipe and someone raised the animals, assuming that you're eating an animal. Someone grew those crops, whatever. Certainly there are lots of hands involved and people involved, but there was an imagination behind all of it, and it's Jesus Christ. And and even the energy to make it and the creativity to put it out on the table and make it look and taste and smell the way it did all has its origin in Jesus Christ. As you drink the fine wine that maybe some of us will be enjoying over the next couple of days, let it sit on your palate and, and stop and think about this. The beauty of the flavor and the bouquet of that wine, it all speaks of Jesus Christ's creativity. And not only that, it speaks of his generosity. He's given it to you. He wants you to enjoy it. He has made it for your enjoyment. Let's keep moving. You see, you see the, the passage just, it piles on the grandeur and the majesty of who Jesus is. Look at verse 17. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see that? Jesus Christ keeps creation running and intact. That doesn't dismiss physics or biology. It doesn't dismiss the laws of nature. But it tells you this. Listen, all the laws of of nature were his idea. They spring forth from his creative, sovereign power. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, puts it this way. It says, "He, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This passage is an amazing passage. I've just highlighted that one little snippet in the middle. The rest of it's pretty mind-blowing too. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And think about that. Think about the paradox, the the mind-blowing reality of this. We can't even wrap our minds around this. The God who holds the universe together by the word of his power is here a child who has not even learned to speak yet. And yet he has not stepped off his throne. This son of God, the second person of the Trinity, laying there in that manger, still somehow in a way that I nor you, I think, can fathom, is the one who holds together the universe. Isaiah 9 says, The government shall rest upon his shoulders. He, he's, he is the, the creator and sustainer. He, he, the, Jesus bears the weight of the universe on his shoulders. This might f- seem silly to you, but I find it interesting to think about the weight of the universe weighing down on the soft little chubby shoulders of an infant. The universe resting upon him. And, and, and listen, think about this for a moment, New Hope. Would you agree with me that this world is a broken place? Would you agree with me that something is deeply fractured and wrong with this world? 
It, it was created good. There's no doubt about that. But sin has brought disorder. Sin has brought death. Sin has brought tragedy into this world. This world is deeply fractured. Not just socially, but naturally as well. I was just reading a quote earlier this week. I was reading a, a short interview with someone who, who owns a house in um, Orange County, California. And he was talking about the fact that he lost everything in recent wildfires. And, and he was there looking. I don't know how far he was, but he was looking at these flames engulf an entire neighborhood, engulf his home, everything he owns. And what he says wasn't just, he wasn't just, oh, I lost everything. You know what he said? He wasn't thinking about his own personal loss. He was thinking, it looked like the world was ending, he says. He says what, 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 what really amazed him and what scared him was that it looked like everything was just burning up. It looked like the world itself was coming to its very end. Wildfires are running rampant right now and have been. I was recently, just some months ago, looking at, at footage of earthquakes in Mexico City. Maybe you saw some of these. This, this, was, this was recent, right? But it was, you know, the news cycle is so crazy recently that we may have lost sight of this. But parts of Mexico City were completely destroyed by earthquakes recently. And people, as we do, were recording. And some of these folks were walking down the streets that they were used to walking down and strolling their kids down, grabbing a bite to eat at. And they're walking down these very familiar streets, but these streets were buckling and crumbling, and buildings that they were heading towards were crumbling down. And what it looked like is that the earth was falling apart. You see, sometimes it might look to us like this earth is barely being held together. Like at any moment, it all might just fall apart. It is fractured. And the only thing that keeps this world from finally falling apart is not a thing at all. It's Jesus. This person, the second person of the Trinity, he is the very same person that this young family is gazing at, is the very same person who made it, sustains it, and holds this fractured world together so that it doesn't once for all just fall apart. Let's keep going. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 19 says that all the fullness of the triune Godhead is in Jesus Christ. That this means that he is fully God. As I said before, he's not just a part of God, a fragment of God. When you look at him, you don't just see a piece of what God is like. He is fully God, even while he is fully human and fully baby. Don't ask me to explain that. I've heard people try, and every time we try to diagram that out and, and explain it fully, you know what ends up happening? We end up in heresy. We end up going way off the wall. We get it wrong, and we mess up the whole thing. There's mystery here. There's no doubt. And I think that it's better for us to simply gaze at that mystery and be amazed by it. 
It's a beautiful mystery. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, not only is Jesus fully God, but God is fully in Jesus Christ. You see the nuance there. It's, it's that, that he is completely God, but when you look at him, you see the totality of who God is in him as well. There's nothing missing to the God that you see when you look at Jesus. And yet, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that this Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And when we read those words, we should stop. That, that should make us pause for a second. We don't want to miss this. Because this is the same Jesus who made everything. It's all his. He holds it all together. And yet, at the same time, there's this very, very unique place in his heart for us, for the church. That's crazy. He is vitally connected to us. New Hope Fellowship. So deep and intimate is this connection that Jesus has with his church, not just us, but his church universally. So intimate and deep is that connection that he calls us his body, and he says, I'm your head. We're connected. We are one. I care for you, he says, like I care for my own body, because you are my body. You see, that's condescension. That, that's the God of the universe saying, I'm not just going to come down and look like you. I'm going to join myself to you. He dwells with us as his church. Jesus says to us, listen, he says, every time you gather, I'm there with you. I'm there. And I'm not just there. I'm not there sleepy in the backseat. I'm, I'm there engaged. I'm there and present and happy to be there. And I care about everything that's going on there. When you pray, he says, I'm there. When you sing, he says, I listen and I love it. I'm deeply concerned for you, he says. So, so remember this. He, Jesus is not just God. He is God with us. Emmanuel, that's what the word means. Present. Not only was he willing to become a man and dwell with men and women for some time, to slum a little bit with us. No, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you, church, for the long haul, eternally. The infinite creator with us. But God isn't, I mean, Jesus is not just God with us. Second point and last point. He is God for us. And what I mean by this is that he is for us, for our good, on our side, desiring our eternal blessedness. Look at what verse 19 says. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Remember we said before that Jesus holds together a fractured world. The beautiful thing about that is that God is not content to simply hold creation together. God's aim is to return creation to what it was meant to be before man's sin brought in a curse upon it. God is pleased not just to hold the world together in Christ, but his plan is to reconcile it to himself, to reconcile to himself all things. 
You see, this is, this is the unbreakable, unchangeable plan of God. His plan is to restore creation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the owner, remember, the rightful heir, the owner, the king, who has come once and he will come back again to reclaim what is his and to restore it and to renew it. That truth has amazed Christians from the very start. We go back several hundred years. Fourth century, Athanasius, He's an African theologian and philosopher, lived in northern Africa in the fourth century. He says this, he says, the renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same one who made it in the beginning. The self-same word who made it in the beginning. He's talking about Jesus there. He's saying the same Jesus who made the world is the same one who's going to renew all of creation. This means the living God has acted and is at work even now to heal the world from all the wickedness, all the corruption that sin has brought in. And, and, and the creator the, the, has, has done this through the same one, through Jesus, the same one through whom the world was made in the first place. The Jesus through whom the world was made is the same Jesus through whom the world will be remade. Renewed. And it's through that same Jesus that all things will be reconciled to God. And wrapped up into that, all things, all of creation, reconciled to God, wrapped up into that is humanity. We are part of the all things that God plans to reconcile to himself through Jesus. People like you and me. People like you and me who have been alienated from God because of our own sin. You have offended God. You have rebelled against God by, by dismissing his rules and statutes, by dismissing his word. You and I both, we, we've chosen to rule ourselves. We've, we've acted as if we belong to ourselves. We've acted as if we are the source of every good thing around us. We've acted as if we're the ones in control of the things around us. We act as if it was all made for us. We've acted as if the world and our lives are ours to do with as we please. You see, human sin hasn't just fractured creation. It has left us broken. And more than broken, really, it's left us guilty condemned by God. It's left us deserving of death and separation from God in hell. When God created the world, he says very clearly, when he creates the world and he creates people and he puts them in the world and he says, it is all very good. You know those words in Genesis? It's all very good, he says. But humanity fell. We threw off the reign of God his rule, and in so doing, we brought destruction. We brought, we brought a curse. Humanity brought a curse, not only upon creation, but upon itself. And for thousands of years, God looked at all of this, and never once again did he look and say, very good. Nothing was very good anymore. Not really. Not ultimately. 
For thousands of years, God looks at humanity, and what does he say? He says, like in Psalm 14, no one is good. It says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. I look, and I don't see anyone righteous. You see, but all that changes in Bethlehem. All that changes when this child is born. Because in Bethlehem, this one is born about whom God can say and does say, he is my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, finally, there's one who's born that God can look at and say, very good. I haven't been well pleased with humanity, with anyone for thousands of years, but this one, this one is righteous. This one is good. Right out of the womb, and and with every day and every hour and every year that he would live, he would just more and more confirm how good and righteous he was. And God says, through this one, I will reconcile humanity to its rightful place. I will reconcile humanity to its place with me. God would do it, Colossians 1 says, by the blood of his cross, by the execution and the bloodletting of Jesus. Verse 20 reminds us that when we look at the manger of Jesus, we have to think about the cross of Jesus. We can't look at one without thinking about the other. And and for some of us, maybe that's uncomfortable because they're like, it's Christmas time. Let's just think about the baby in the manger. It's sweet, it's warm. We can't look at the manger without thinking about the cross. We can't think about the birth of Jesus without thinking about his execution. Because this infant was born to die. He was born to spill his blood. It wasn't a series of unfortunate events that brought him to the cross. It was the eternal plan of God. To spill his blood for us and then to resurrect for us and be the firstborn from the dead as Colossians 1 says. You see, these two images of the manger and the cross, they're never meant to be separated. Because the fact is that if it weren't for our you see, we think of it this way. The cross, it just reminds me of my sin. The manger reminds me of God's love. It reminds me of warmth. It gives me the fuzzy feels inside. But no, the manger reminds you of your sin too, because if it wasn't for your sin, that baby would have never had to be born in that nasty place. If it wasn't for your sin, the king of glory would never have to have been born in Bethlehem. His very birth and the cross both remind you and me of our awful, awful sin. And both the manger and the cross remind us of God's incredible, unfathomable love. See, this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths would grow up to be wrapped in grave clothes. It's interesting. You read the story about what happens after Jesus is taken down from the cross, and he's wrapped in these cloths. And it's reminiscent. It's not a coincidence. It reminds us of what we read in Luke 2. Wrapped in cloths, only this time he's not laid down in a manger. He's laid in a tomb. Wrapped up. And the Bible tells us that if we put our faith in him, then we can stand before God, not in shame and with guilt and condemned, but we can stand before God, wrapped, robed in his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at us, who have put our faith in Jesus and have joined ourselves to him, then God can look at us and say, very good. 
Not because of the way you live, not because of what you've done, but because you are in Jesus, because your faith is in him, you are connected to him. And so God can look at you and say, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Very good. Athanasius, the same African theologian I quoted a, a moment ago, he said back, and he wrote this book on the, on the incarnation, on the, 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 the birth of, of Jesus. And um, it's an amazing classic. Um, Christian history. But he says in, the, in, in there, he goes, it was our sorry case that caused the word Jesus to come down. He says, our transgressions that called out his love for us. He sees it was because of our sins that, that that's, what, that, that's what, what drew out and revealed his love for us so that he made haste to help us. And to appear among us. And we can add to this. He didn't just appear among us. He died brutally for us. And he rose again for us. And because of this, because of this, what Romans 10 tells us is unshakable truth. And you can base the rest of your life from here on out on what Romans 10 tells us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. This Jesus that we're looking at in the manger, this Jesus that is presented in all of his glory in Colossians 1, if we look to him and confess him as Lord, if we believe in our hearts who he is and who he said he was and what he did through his death and his resurrection, we stake all of our lives on that. God says you will not be put to shame. You will be saved. I think that some of us in our culture tend to have an incomplete view of who Jesus is. A kind of truncated, kind of inadequate view of who Jesus is. Especially this time of year, it becomes obvious. Jesus is the baby in the manger. And yes, he was a baby in a manger, but if we separate the baby in the manger from everything else the scriptures teach us, then we get a really kind of impotent view of who Jesus is. We were, my family and I just decorated our Christmas tree yesterday. Don't judge us. It's been a busy time. In any case, we, we just got around to decorating yesterday. And I'm unpacking these ornaments, and one of them is um, this ornament. I don't know how it got into our family exactly, but um, it, it's a, um, it was very cute, but it was weird, right? So it's, it's basically this, uh, it's a snowman holding this manger in its arms with a smile on its face. And the manger has, I'm guessing it's a manger, it has this little like blonde-headed baby in it, who I assume is supposed to be Jesus, I guess. Um, so there's a little blonde-headed baby in this manger, and the snowman is holding it with a big smile on his face. And underneath it says, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. And the reason I say it's strange is because, I mean, I've read Luke 2. You've read Luke 2. I've seen lots of nativity scenes. I, I didn't know that Frosty the snowman was there, right, at the, at the nativity scene. Apparently Frosty was there, and he was holding the manger. And underneath, like I said, it says, for God so loved. And it's, such, it's like this cutesy, like kind of, it's kind of tacky, right? But you can't help but smile. 
And underneath it just says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And there's his son, and he gave him to us along with the snowman. The snowman gives us the son. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's very warm and fuzzy. And what we fail to take away from this, beyond all the cultural context that would eliminate snowmen and blonde-headed babies and all that, what we fail to get from all this is the weight and the glory of who this American Christmas time Jesus really is. The America Christmas time Jesus is not the Jesus of Colossians 1. Even the verse itself is true as far as it goes. I read, you know, underneath it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But it doesn't tell us why he gave us a son. Why did he give us a son? Because we were so lost and so wrecked in our sin. And it doesn't tell us not only that he gave us his son so that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. But then a couple of verses down, John tells us that if you have not believed in him, you are already condemned. You are perishing. The American Christmas time, Jesus is woefully, woefully inadequate. The Colossians 1 Jesus is the real deal. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? I said before, if you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. But don't just look. Trust. Receive him as Lord. Submit your life to him as king. Worship him. And if you will, if you will do this, then what Colossians 1 goes on to say will be true of you. Look at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. To believe in Jesus is to now be reconciled to God. In order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. To believe in Jesus means that you can now stand before God holy, blameless, no reproach, no shame. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, if you have trusted in Jesus as king, if you have submitted to him as your king, if you view him as your Lord and believe in him, if this is the baby that you celebrate at Christmas, the, the baby that, that's described in Colossians 1, not that incomplete American Christmas time Jesus, if that's where your faith is, then... Here's God's counsel to you. Here's God's wise advice to you. Continue in the faith, verse 23. Continue believing, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't let go. Don't stop trusting him. I don't know about you, but I do like Christmas time very much. Do you like Christmas time? Do you like the, the trees and the hot chocolate? Maybe the eggnog? Eggnog gets a lot of hate. I think it's pretty good. The lights, the traditions. Doesn't it all get old, though? Doesn't it all start to lose something over time? Some of you maybe are already like, I'm over Christmas. It's lost its, it's, lost its beauty for me a long time ago. Maybe for you, Christmas is a very tough time. Time filled with sadness and pain. 
But even if you are into Christmas, listen, none of the warm fuzzies of a Christmas time and Christmas dinners and gifts and, and Michael Bublé singing the Christmas song, none of that is going to get you through the rest of this year, much less through next year. Holiday cheer is not enough to get you through life as a sinner in a fractured, broken world. But this song, that Colossians 1 gives us, this song will get you through. It'll get you through 2018, through the disappointment and the loss, through depression. Maybe 2017 was a rough year for you. For some of us, it was a real rough year. Some of us faced some battles we hadn't experienced before. Some of us can say what got us through 2017 wasn't, oh, you know, the holidays are coming up. Get to spend some more time with family, get some time off. That'll get me through. Vacation. Next year will be better. 2018, it's got to get better, right? That's not what got some of us through. It's not enough to get you through. The belief that next year will be better it ain't enough. A new job, a new relationship, that's not enough to get you through. Maybe some of you are hoping for presidential impeachment. That's not going to be enough to get you through. Even if it happens, it's not going to be enough. I guarantee it. But this glorious truth that's shining through the lyrics of this hymn, the Jesus whose glory shines through the lyrics of this hymn, he is enough. He has the power to shape the way that you look at the world and the way that you look at yourself so that you can look at the world and say with all the madness, all the craziness, all the disappointment, this was made by him, for him, and is being sustained even now by him, and it will be renewed one day. And it's enough to shape the way you look at yourself so that you can look at yourself in all of your brokenness and all of your sadness right now and say, I am his. I am reconciled to God through his blood. He looks upon me as righteous. I am blameless and beyond reproach and loved by him. That will get you through life. That kind of Jesus can get you through, not only through 2018, but into a blessed eternity. The Jesus who has made peace by the blood of his cross. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, you stand, your birth stands at the very center of history. But we confess that who you are and what you've done often does not stand at the very center of our lives. We pray that you would change that. We orient us, change our hearts so that when we look at you, your birth, your life, your death and resurrection, at the person and work of you, Jesus Christ, that when we gaze upon that, we will be not only overwhelmed and awed, but that we will worship and that we will submit all of our lives to you and center everything on you. This is our desire. This is what you demand of us. Would you make it a reality for us? In your name, amen.